circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin. This is occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. And this week on Full Circle, we will be diving into the politics of the National Football League. Yes, the NFL. On tonight's show, we'll hear clips from Dave Zirin's groundbreaking film, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. We'll also hear from the filmmaker himself, sports columnist for The Nation magazine, Dave Zirin. He was interviewed last week by KPFA's Davey D. And of course, here in the Fall Fun Drive, we will be asking for your support for this important media outlet, KPFA. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host tonight, Free Will and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch. This here is Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Yes, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Free Will and Franklin, and I will be your host tonight. And yes, tonight I am excited to be able to present this film, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. I am a football fan and a quote-unquote consumer of the sport. And we have covered a lot of sports-related social issues here on Full Circle. Um, But first off tonight, to get us started, we're going to hear an interview hosted by Davey D. Last week on Hard Knock Radio, Davey D. interviewed the filmmaker of Behind the Shield, the power and politics of the NFL, Dave Zirin. And Dave Zirin, you know as the columnist from the edge of sports uh, for the nation magazine he also does a radio show called the collision the intersection of sports and politics and remember while you're listening tonight to this interview and later the clips from the film if you'd like to get your own copy of the film behind the shield the power and politics of the nfl you can make a secure donation anytime at kpfa.org, or of course, you can call the same old good old number, 1-800-439-5732, that's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. So let's get into an excerpt from the interview with KPFA's own Davey D of Hard Knock Radio and Dave Zirin, sports columnist for The Nation magazine, discussing his film, Behind the Shield, the power and politics of the NFL. First, if you can just kind of remind people of the documentary and where do we stand now with football just starting? Because, you know, some would say 
it's going a few steps backwards. <laughs> Welcome Amen. to the show, Dave. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate the way you frame the discussion. Uh, first and foremost, but if people want more info, BehindTheShieldMovie.com. Uh, it's an effort to analyze the NFL's effect on our culture, which is immense. Because as you know, Davey, um, we have had such splintering culturally since the times when you and I were coming up. And, you know, some of that is social media, but it was really happening before social media. I remember going into like Tower Records. Who remembers Tower Records? Wow. Back when that was still open and being shocked. And this was like towards the very end of Tower Records before, right before streaming just took over everything. I remember being shocked by how they segmented the music and how much more it was segmented from when I was growing up and how that actually, that segmentation keeps people from looking at records they might normally, not normally have looked at or, you know, strolling their eyes over, you know, an old blues album when they're actually going there to find UTFO or whatever it is. And I just remember seeing that and wondering about like, wow, is this where we're headed? And sure enough, in the age of the internet, that's the only thing that's a constant is the splintering, except there's one exception to that rule. And that's the National Football League. It's like the last vestige of the monoculture in this country. The closest thing we have to a, a religion, a conversation, a, something that people can have over a water cooler. I mean, there's so little left of that. And I think that's one of the things that attracts people to it is that in this country is that sense of belonging. Um, of course, they also love in this United States, you know, three and a half hours of highly commodified violence where you don't have to look at the faces of people getting hurt. That's true too. But when you look at like the top 20 television shows of a given season in all of TV, NFL games over the last five years have been at least 15 of the top 20 shows. One mm. year it was 20 out of 20. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable the thirst that people have for this product. And so if that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what effect is it having on the country? Right. What effect is it having on the culture? What tropes does it reinforce? What tropes does it challenge? Um, can it be used as a tool of resistance by players, by fans, or is it this inherently right-wing product because the people who own the teams are basically like Trump buddies? You know, this right. is a Trump operation at the top. And in a lot of respects, you know, I remember when it was a Trump, Trump occupation at the top and a Kaepernick operation at the bottom. Now we've passed that point because they won't give Colin work, but still, the divide is deep. Like what Jesse Jackson called this out in the seventies, he called it vertical segregation. And uh, my, my man, Michael Bennett would always say that the NFL isn't integrated. It's segregated because it's segregated by who owns and who plays. And Michael Bennett also liked to say that the NFL stands for N word for lease. Wow. Because of how players are treated and how disposable careers are. So there, there's much to look at and much to criticize about the National Football League. But, you know, it's also incredibly exciting. It's incredibly narcotic. It's very difficult to not get into. 
And, you know, that makes it something that we have to decode. And I try to do that with Behind the Shield. How much of the need to escape reality does this does the NFL lead to our, us being attracted to it? You, so you, you... much escape from reality. Uh, it, it, it's, it's all about it. I mean, it's like Victory Monday is a real thing in my house. Like if the Ravens win on Sunday, you know, me and my son, like not only is there sort of like a lighter mood, but also I find myself, you know, when I do my exercise for the day, I'm listening to the Instant Ravens podcast as I'm walking to get a better understanding of the game. I got to be honest, when the Ravens lose, I'm not even trying to listen to those podcasts. Hmm. So this idea of escape is very much a part of what the NFL is offering as a product. I mean, think about it. The NFL has basically colonized one day of the week. And that day, first of all, was a day that people used to seek community through, through church and through religion. And now people seek community through the National Football League. And Sunday is also a day that for a lot of people brings the doldrums because you know Monday is the next day and you got to rise and grind. So to provide that avenue of escape on a Sunday is, I think, part of its appeal. You also mentioned the violence. Um, are we living vicariously through, you know, the players? Um, does yeah, it reflect yeah. on the way that we in society um, behave as a result? We, we often heard the, the warning that on Super Bowl Sunday, that is the day that you had the highest incidence of domestic violence. Right? We, we've heard that, and I guess that's been backed up you know, by stats at one point or another. But in general, if we get this catharticism through watching the NFL, does it make us less empathetic when folks are saying, hey, Dave, let's uh, call for peace. Let's work this out. Nah, we got to fight and we got to go all the way in. Oh, or does the yeah. NFL reflect the way America is? And that's why it does what it does. I'm glad you said America, because it's very important to know that the NFL is a United States product of consumption that is only consumed really in the United States. I mean, they do a couple games in London every year, but you know, I, I always say I think those stadiums are filled with study abroad students on their way to Amsterdam. There's no passion for American football in London, so. Given that U.S. cultural products from, you know, from, from hip-hop to Marvel movies tend to be consumed so lustily by the world, like whatever comes out of America, it's worth asking the question, why doesn't American football, our most popular domestic product, you know, other countries as a point of pride reject football? And... It's not enough just to say, well, Americans just love violence because there's violence in a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. You know, boxing is popular all over the world. Mixed martial arts is pop popular all over the world. So I think it's not just about the violence, although I do think, you know, this is a uniquely violent country. Um, what makes it uniquely violent, though, compared to, say, any other random other country where there's violence, because there is violence all over the world, is that I think because of this country's tradition of 
let me put it like this. Football takes root in this country at the turn of the 20th century when there's a push by the United States to become the biggest global empire on earth. Hmm. And football was openly promoted by people like Teddy Roosevelt as a way of preparing people for this American century of conquest. And it's so baked into the cake of the idea of not just violence, but conquest and settler colonialism that is largely unique to the growth, expansion, and identity of the United States. And that, and, and you have to qualify it by, by saying white America, uh, because so much of Roosevelt's ideals about conquest were rooted in ideas about white supremacy. And right. early, and this is hard for folks to imagine because 70% of NFL players are of African descent. And by the way, too many people say black Americans and not of African descent because we got a lot of players from sub-Saharan Africa now playing right. in the National Football League, couple players from Haiti, and we got to give everybody their respect. I'm just saying, that's a quick thing. Um, but you know, it's hard to imagine, but early football was exclusively a white operation. Right. And it and was exclusively so. played. And yeah, and exclusively played on uh on elite campuses. Harvard, Yale, and the like. You know, or played in the military academies, which were elite at that time, if you were in the army uh up in West Point. You know, that was for uh, the, the elites, not for people who were gonna become soldiers. So it was about training this generation of elites to be powerful enough in their mindset to take over the world. And I think that's the thing that makes it uniquely American. Let me ask you this, um, in the documentary, and you alluded to this by talking about Teddy Roosevelt, you show the racist uh, beginnings of the NFL and it carries on all the way through. You know, it's fascinating because you detail it and it's not something that you can look at and say, oh, that was back in the days. Um, but since then, you know, the documentary comes out, people have got a chance to talk. Have there been any improvements? And I ask this because it seems like several things have emerged. You know, one, the picture of Dallas Cowboy owner Jerry Jones hanging out literally at a segregation rally at school. Um, and that was not covered and talked about by many of the sports agencies. It was almost like this is too powerful an individual. Let's sweep it under the carpet. People like yourself brought it up, while others uh, just kind of like, oh, we can't talk about that. And then we heard about memos and other things, maybe even coming from the commissioner. So how, how are you seeing things, you know, in terms of the racism with the NFL? It's, you know, as you said, most of the owners are diehard Trump supporters. They're the ones that finance his inauguration you know, with, with no apology, you know, so where are we at in 2023? I mean, it, it's highly, highly, highly paradoxical because the NFL always blows with the dominant wins. And so it's no con coincidence that to me in these utterly reactionary times where the Colin Kaepernick is becoming more of a memory than a live wire issue because our, our times move so quick these days, you know, um, that, you know, they take end racism out of the end zone, at, which was there since the police murder of George Floyd. End racism is not there anymore. It used to be in a lot of end zones around the NFL. 
Black Lives Matter signs used to be uh, hang from the rafters by teams. Wow. For goodness sakes. You know, I saw it. I was in stadiums. That, that's done. That's gone. They're like, okay, we paid our penance, except they're, they're, that's all superficial. You know, that's all marketing. That's all commercialism. Because where are, where is the black ownership? Where, where are the black executives? You know, why, why is it still news when you have a black coach? Why was it news? And I mean, think about this. Brown versus Board of Ed was 54. It was news in 2023 that for the first time, two black quarterbacks were facing against each other in the Super Bowl. Wow. How are we at a point where that's still a story? You know, the first black quarterback to start a game was James Shaq Harris in 1969. That's 15 years after Brown versus Board of Ed, for goodness wow. sake. I mean, if you think about it in terms of the progress made in society, you know, the fact that you had black starting pitchers in the NF, in the Major League Baseball um, almost immediately after Jackie Robinson integrated. And pitcher is like the, the equivalent to me of quarterback because that's the quote-unquote thinking position that NFL owners said that black people could not handle because of its emphasis on thinking and leadership and all the rest of it. Obviously, that's not to say Major League Baseball didn't have its own institutionalized racism with regards to management, ownership, and the rest of it. But still, it staggers me that as bad as the sports world was on these questions, the NFL was just worse. Yeah. You know, and and not and and by a significant degree. So where it is now, I think, is very much in line with its tradition. You know, I just interviewed Jim Trotter who is suing the NFL. Jim Trotter is respected, award-winning sports writer, ESPN, Sports Illustrated. He worked for a minute for the NFL Network, and they told him that there were questions that he could not ask, and he believed he was fired because he, quote-unquote, embarrassed Roger Goodell by asking him at the big Super Bowl press conference, where are the black coaches? Wow. And, you know, he asked it in a much sharper way than that. But that was the essence of the question. And Roger Goodell stammered and hemmed and hawed and all the rest of it. And he says that he was told that, um, that say an owner did something racist or there was some story like Jerry Jones turning up at a, you know, segregation rally when he was a teenager. Like stuff like that you could cover because it's broader news. But you can't do your own reporting and dig and find that stuff. Right. But in in, in his lawsuit, he talks about um, messages and exchanges where it was pretty racially charged, almost uh, similar to what we saw with the exchange of uh, uh, former Raider coach uh, um, John Gruden. John Gruden. Yeah. A very similar language. Uh, Terry Pagula, the owner of the Bills saying mockingly, uh, hey, if the NFL is so bad, you can always go back to Africa. Uh, he says Jerry Jones said, you know, hey, if you don't like our coaching and executive hiring, you know, why don't you just buy your own team? Ha, ha, ha. And now as this comes come out, Jerry Jones said, I will crawl across the state of Texas to get black ownership in the NFL. So th that's why I said it's paradoxical. Wow. Because it's not like they can be open racist because the legacy of Kaepernick is that it was like a warning shot as to who really has the power here, who really has the platform, 
what's more influential, a starting quarterback, and in Cap's case, not even a starting quarterback at that point, uh, playing behind Blaine Gabbert for some God knows reason, and you know, taking a knee. Then, of course, Colin did start and kick ass that whole season, but that's a separate right. conversation. Like, how much more influence does he have than a Jerry Jones on the culture, on the conversation? And, you know, the fact that he upended the racial capitalism of the NFL is what precisely made him so dangerous. And even if Cap is probably done, as well as what he was inspiring among other players, the memory, the lesson, the warning that it gave the people in charge, I think is real. All right. Welcome back. You are listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. My name is Freewell and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And you just heard part of an interview by our own Davey D. He's the host of Hard Knock Radio on KPFA each weekday at 4 p.m., he was in conversation with Dave Zirin, writer for The Nation magazine covering their sports column. He also has a, pod, a podcast called The Collision, where sports and politics collide. And they were speaking about Dave Zirin's film, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. And in that interview excerpt, they touched on many things, including the NFL's past racial politics and the politics of today. But he also talked about the fans of the NFL and how we are still one of the only great melting pots of all Americans here. So we're going to, in just a couple moments, go to extended excerpts of the film Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. But before that, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we are still in the midst of our fall fund drive. And we are hoping that you might want to pick up a copy of this film Behind the Shield. And at the same time, support this station, KPFA. Please, if you are interested, take a moment to head over to kpfa.org and click on that Donate tab and make a secure donation to get this film. If the power and politics of the NFL is not your cup of soup, there are many thank you gifts there to choose from. But I'm hoping that some sports fan out there will be interested in this film tonight. And again, just another moment to give out the number 1-800-439-5732. That's the phone number to call. But also the easiest way for us to take your donation is kpfa.org. If you are able, head over to that website and uh, click on the Donate tab and get yourself a copy of this film. A quick thank you um, for everybody taking the time to make that donation. And as you head over there, I'm going to head and move on because I really want you all to hear some clips from the film tonight. And as I have mentioned in the beginning, I am a sports fan and in particular a football fan. And bringing this film to you tonight really is a treat for me. And as we are about to get into the film, I want to set it up to you all as a question. Who started the politics in the NFL? Was it when Colin Kaepernick took a knee to protest police brutality? Or was it decades before, during the height of the Vietnam War and social unrest, where Nixon became the first sitting president to attend an NFL game? Or was it the time the first military flyover took place? Or 
Was it at Super Bowl 25 when just weeks into the first Gulf War, President George H.W. Bush gave a support the troops speech with his wife and used Disney to create a halftime show with children and military members? These are just some of the politics of the NFL. So remember, when you're listening to this first clip, if you'd like to get yourself your own copy of the film Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL, you can make a donation anytime at kpfa.org. Or again, you can call 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Okay, we're going to get into uh, the film by Dave Zirin, sports writer for The Nation magazine. This is Behind the Shield, the power and politics of the NFL, and it's focusing on the militarism of the NFL. In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy, in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. Hitting begins with hand-to-hand combat at the line of scrimmage. Their war is a lonely war that is submerged and fought in the trenches. The idea of football as a battlefield and players as warriors is built into the very language of the sport. Like guided missiles, players carried heavy payloads and they used their bodies to launch retaliatory strikes with devastating effect. Number 50, search and destroy. Well, when he is not coaching the Cougs, you can find head football coach Mike Leach leading a lecture. For the last five weeks, Leach and former state senator Mike Baumgartner have been teaching a course called Insurgent Warfare and Football Strategy. During the surge in Iraq, American military focused on constricting the insurgency space, said Baumgartner. Then, Coach Leach used Cougar football film to show how his air raid offense gives opponents fewer options in space. And all of this has made the NFL the nation's premier staging ground for displays of patriotism and militarism. From massive field-sized flags and flyovers to the NFL's salute to service campaigns and four-star generals doing the coin flip before the Super Bowl, NFL football games have become celebrations and spectacles of national pride and America's armed forces. So that on the biggest stage in sports, You have football, the flag, and the military, routinely and seamlessly integrated, coming to embody the very ideal of American power and strength. In a game known for its complex passing patterns and crossing routes, it only makes sense that a good flyover can give inspiration. The anthem is ending. It's hitting that beautiful crescendo. Plane comes over, and that's America. If you're around the world and you're watching that, I think you go, you know what? I get it. America's pretty cool. And it tells you everything you need to know about how deeply political and ideological these things are when you realize they only really start to become a common feature of the NFL during the Vietnam War. During the 60s, you have all these different movements, the anti-war movement, the black freedom struggle, challenging the old order. 
explosives and police power. And it's precisely at this moment that the NFL starts to be weaponized. Whenever they wave the stars and stripes above you. Not from the left-wing radicals of the counterculture, but by those who saw in football a way to project the traditional patriotic values that were being questioned in the larger society. Let's make America what it used to be. Before anyone can embrace freedom, I think they must first embrace those things which underline freedom. They are duty and respect for authority and a development of a mental discipline. No NFL figure embodied these traditional values more than Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi, whose teams were dominant throughout the 1960s. Lombardi represented everything the left-wing counterculture allegedly seemed to lack. Physical and mental toughness, discipline, respect for authority. And in 1969, the Nixon administration would mobilize Lombardi and NFL football as political weapons. Two days after the Vietnam War moratorium, one of the largest anti-Vietnam protests to that point, a Nixon aide drafted a memo encouraging the president to attend football. Nixon agreed, becoming the first sitting president to attend an NFL game, which just so happened to be between the Dallas Cowboys and the Washington football team, which was now coached by Vince Lombardi. I think as we think of men like Vince Lombardi, we can think of what that should mean and can mean to America. It did set up a contrast. He wanted the country to know that football fans were different than the moratorium people. The Redskins made a decision as to what they wanted to do for their halftime that involved all the branches of the armed forces. The message to the American people was clear. During a time of deep political divisions, the National Football League was on the side of Nixon, the flag, and the war. In fact, Pete Rozelle, the NFL's commissioner, had already made the decision to use the league to tip the scales in a pro-war direction. Super Bowl II featured the first military flyover. And in 1969, Rozelle staged an elaborate patriotic halftime show called America Thanks. And as American and Vietnamese casualties were piling up, and popular opposition to the Vietnam War was growing, Roselle turned his attention to the national anthem. Before the 1970 Super Bowl between the Minnesota Vikings and the Kansas City Chiefs, Roselle demanded that players stand upright and totally still during the anthem with helmets held under their arms. Roselle went so far as to mandate that players prepare for the national anthem by doing drills during Super Bowl practices, appointing a member of his staff as, quote, vice president in charge of the national anthem. Meanwhile, the NFL did its best to act like it reflected the free-thinking spirit of the times. During the 1960s, there was marching in the street and walking on the moon. Profound changes affected every aspect of American culture, and pro football was no different. But the rebel image the NFL tried to cultivate during this period was family-friendly and limited to things like players growing their hair out. From his unconventional white shoes to his mod god hair, Namath stands alone in his flamboyance. Guys like Joe Namath were the epitome of rebels without a cause, completely devoid of any of the scary political content that was raging in the real world. Their rebellion only as long 
as their sideburns. Some football players wanted some things changed. I mean, why would a guy not be able to wear a mustache or have long hair? Silly things, you know. And on the very rare occasions when NFL players did show the courage to stand up for what they believed in, they paid a heavy price. My next guest one of pro football's most, was one of pro football's most ferocious linebackers, and he's written a book which is not out yet, but a lot of people are dreading its publication. Will you welcome, please, Dave Magacy. Just look what happened to St. Louis Cardinals linebacker Dave Megacy, who in many ways was the Colin Kaepernick of his time. Megacy refused to come out for the anthem and then walked away from the sport writing a blistering book that exposed how the language and culture of the league were being used to sell the Vietnam War. I think the whole resident of football is, is violence, it's institutional violence. Mm -hmm. A man by the name of Thomas Morgan wrote a piece in Esquire about three years ago called The American War Game. And like Colin Kaepernick, paid for raising these issues with his job. It really came down to in my last year in 1969 when I was benched because of my anti-war activities. The message was clear. The only political messages allowed in NFL football are those that promote uncritical patriotism, blind obedience to political authority, and support for American militarism. Something we've seen again and again in the years since, especially during times of war. Four, three, Two, one, Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. In 1991, 10 days before the Super Bowl between the New York Giants and the Buffalo Bills, the United States launched a massive aerial assault against Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces in Kuwait and initiated the first Gulf War. It was the first major U.S. combat operation since the catastrophe in Vietnam. And while there didn't seem to be much enthusiasm for football, the NFL made the decision to play the game. In a stadium with the tightest security of any NFL game ever played, Super Bowl 25 began under the shadow of war in the Mideast. And proceeded to use it to push the pro-war index to new heights. The NFL gave out 72,000 American flags to fans to wave as they entered the stadium. Then there was this. Did you ever know that you're my hero? The NFL turned to Disney to produce a patriotic halftime show cast almost entirely with children, intercutting all-American childhood innocence with images of troops going to war in the Gulf, and then brought the children of American military personnel onto the field before capping it all off with a child-friendly war message from President George H.W. Bush and First Lady Barbara Bush. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening from the White House to everyone in the Sunshine State and around the world enjoying this wonderful game. Today, we should recognize the men and women in our armed forces. Far away from home, they protect freedom in the Persian Gulf and around the world. On behalf of the whole Bush family, Thank you for allowing us to be with you tonight. And God bless you all. And God bless all freedom-loving people around the world. But the pregame festivities stole the show when Whitney Houston, dressed in red, white, and blue, delivered what's probably the most famous national anthem performance in sports history.
As she sang, American military personnel held flags of U.S. allies in the war effort, and the American flag was everywhere. Welcome back. You are listening to clips from the documentary film Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. This is by the friend to KPFA, Dave Zirin, who is the sports writer for The Nation magazine. And as many of you may know, we are raising funds tonight for KPFA. And if you'd like a copy of this film, Behind the Shield, you can make a donation right now at kpfa.org. You can also call 1-800-439-5732. And you can remember that by remembering 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And as many of you may know, and as I mentioned in the opening of the show, I am a consumer of the NFL. I've been a Raider fan, passed down from my dad my entire life. And when the Raiders were still here in Oakland, I was a season ticket holder and would tailgate all day until game time and go root for my team, the Raiders. So this film really hit hard at football fans and our beliefs, whatever they may be. When what they did to Colin Kaepernick was out for everyone to see, it got a lot of people on both sides, including myself, either supporting or questioning the NFL's judgment here. But this militarism the film just spoke about is only the tip of the iceberg coming up in just a few moments. We will hear about what did happen to Colin Kaepernick and other players that took the knee. Um, But right now I'm going to give a quick moment to ask for your support for this important radio station, KPFA. The important thing right now is to keep this station alive, KPFA, and to keep this network alive, the Pacifica radio network. So if you are able to make a financial contribution to keep KPFA, this original media establishment going, give us a click right now at kpfa.org. And don't forget, you can also still use the phone and call us at 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. And then you could actually get yourself a copy of this film, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. And this film gets into a lot, how it's supposed to harden men out of what have become soft men in the United States. This film talks about when the first black players were allowed in the NFL. And you might be surprised because it was in the 1920s. It was fully open. It didn't become until the 1930s in the Jim Crow era after a meeting of team owners that they actually banned black players from playing. All this information can be yours when you get yourself a copy of the film Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. This DVD can be yours. It's a $120 donation or you can make 10 payments of $12 a month. And again, as a football fan, this film really interests me to see the real history behind the shield and how this organization was formed, the NFL, the connections to the military, 
when they talked about the Vietnam War and how they used the NFL to give a counter message to all the anti-war activity and action that was in the streets. So it really struck home for me because Vietnam is where I lost my uncle, John Charles Sterling. Again, take this moment to get online, kpfa.org, and grab yourself a copy of this tremendous film, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. It's for a one-time donation of $120, or again, you can make 12 payments over 10 months and receive this great DVD. One more time for the number, 1-800-439-5732, or the best way to make a donation to KPFA, head over to kpfa.org and make a contribution to this important media outlet. Okay, again, a big thank you to all you folks for listening to me and for making that donation. I'm going to move on right now. Thank you, everyone. Um, Let's take a uh, listen to this next clip from Behind the Shield, the power and politics of the NFL, and we'll hear how the NFL and the media conspired to vilify and demonize Colin Kaepernick and all the other players that chose to speak out. And don't forget, again, while you're listening, if you want a copy of this film for yourself, head over to kpfa.org and give us a click or give us a call at 1-800-439-5732. We'll be right back. Only one man commands the flight of a football. He is the quarterback. And then, of course, there's the history of black quarterbacks in the NFL. Like Hollywood's matinee idols, pro football's quarterbacks draw the camera's eye with a magnetic allure. For years, being a quarterback was thought of as a thinking man's position and only suitable for white players. There's a long and ugly history in this country of seeing black athletes, including black football players, as intellectually inferior to whites and as undisciplined buffoons. So for decades, black quarterbacks who were stars in college were switched to wide receivers and other positions when they got to the NFL. The quarterback is supposed to be the smart guy. And Negroes infer the owners don't think any of them are smart enough. Understandably, this angers them. If you are white, you overlook the issues and enjoy the game. On the other hand, if you are black, must sometimes chew at your insides. I even had a problem, you know, just being able to play quarterback at my high school as an African-American because they didn't want to see an African-American guy in those type of leadership roles. Doug Williams, he is a man about to step solidly into the pages of social history. These conceptions weren't shattered until Doug Williams took Washington, of all teams, to the 1988 Super Bowl, and as the first black quarterback to ever start the big game, broke every passing record that the league had ever seen. I hope he puts to bed once and for all about the black athlete in professional football. But while there's no question that players like Doug Williams and Warren Moon opened the door for black quarterbacks in the NFL today, black QBs continue to be stereotyped as more athletic than intelligent. And the percentage of black quarterbacks is still strikingly low for a league that is roughly two-thirds black. For everything that the pioneers, the the guys that we were talking about, for everything they accomplished and endured, still dealing with racism. The interesting thing to me is that we see a lot of stars that are black quarterbacks, right? We don't see many average (laughs) black quarterbacks, right? You're not seeing many black backup quarterbacks. There's a few, but it's not many. The cold truth 
is that this is a sport that revels in the violence of the black body for the consumption of white fans, as well as the profit of white owners. And it has a major issue with any kind of black autonomy and control. And there's no question this is one of the reasons that Colin Kaepernick has posed such a threat to the NFL. Touchdown, 49ers! Not only is he a quarterback, he's a black quarterback. And he decided to use his position as quarterback, the most high profile position in the NFL, the most public position in sports, to defy the NFL power structure. And on top of that, use the national anthem as his staging ground to do it. Colin Kaepernick, what he did and what he said crosses sports boundaries. 49ers quarterback refusing to stand for the national anthems of four games. In protest over racial injustice and police brutality. <laughs> That summer, two murders committed by police had been caught on tape, one of a man named Philando Castile and the other of Alton Sterling. These police shootings were taking place in poor black communities where a lot of these players were from. So they felt this issue very intimately. Even though we're playing in this league and we're able to do these things on Sunday, we're still our people and we're still connected to the things and the issues that are happening around us. Alton Sterling was killed by police last week. And they had people on social media saying, who's gonna stand up? Are you gonna stand up and try to do something about this? This is what Kaepernick was responding to. A lot of my teammates come from areas where this might be a situation. Their families might be put in this situation. There's people being murdered unjustly. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right by anyone's standards. And the reaction was absolute rage. Seven NFL executives, they were anonymous, but the consensus, he says, is that the front offices hate Kaepernick for what hate is the word. Hate him, they called him a traitor. NFL executives immediately made it clear that black athletes using their platform to try to peacefully raise awareness about racism were somehow un-American and an embarrassment to the league. I've seen far more press conferences of GMs and owners and coaches sticking by their guys amid some pretty murky and disgusting circumstances. But that's all good. But here's somebody who's trying to stand for justice and for equality and you consider that to be somehow embarrassing your NFL. When the dust settled, Kaepernick paid for raising these issues with his job, colluded against and shut out of the league by NFL owners. This morning, the quarterback who led the San Francisco 49ers to a Super Bowl four years ago can't find an NFL team. But NFL owners and executives didn't stop at going after Kaepernick themselves. They also stood by and said and did nothing while Donald Trump and a rising chorus of overwhelmingly white reactionary voices revived every racist trope in the book to bully and vilify Kaepernick and other black players who took a knee. They're ungrateful millennial millionaires who won't stand for their own anthem. I think it's a little bit ludicrous that people are raising their fists when they're really filled with cash. I am a girl who doesn't know a lot about football, but I do know an <laughs> ungrateful jerk when I see one. <laughs> During the time he was taking a knee, Kaepernick had given away more than a million dollars to the kinds of grassroots community organizations that have trouble keeping the lights on. But that wasn't enough for a lot of people. Why don't they get off their knees and do something? Spend some money, get off your knees and walk the walk. The league also remained silent and demonstrated zero leadership 
when a chorus of commentators and sports figures revived the long history of white people of questionable intelligence demeaning black minds. This is a silly story. It's getting yeah. sillier to me, Tucker. I mean, this guy's a child with a head injury. He's a moron. He doesn't know what he's doing. These players are so uninformed or stupid, I'm not sure which, they don't understand what the national anthem and the American flag stand for. Then the league held its fire and cowered on the sidelines when Donald Trump told millions of Fox News viewers that Kaepernick and other black players should maybe find another country to live in. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. A classic race-baiting message with its go-back-to-Africa overtones that clearly resonated with Trump's white nationalist nativist base. I got a better idea. Why don't you go back to Africa and form your little football teams over in Africa? The player protests had clearly provoked something deep, ugly, and primordial in the American consciousness. Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick's jersey and likeness were burned and hanged. He faced death threats. And a lot of people got off on playing out their fantasies of doing violence to him. The Navy is investigating a pair of videos showing a demonstration of military dogs attacking a man wearing a Colin Kaepernick jersey. And the backlash against Kaepernick and the protests wasn't limited to Trump supporters on the right. What's your reaction to Colin Kaepernick? I mean, I, I'd do it differently. I think if you really thought about issues uh, and about this country, you'd do it differently. And when I heard him explain his rationale, it didn't really make that much sense to me. And there was no missing how much these perspectives were shaped by race. From the very start, polls showed that huge majorities of black Americans supported Kaepernick and the protests, had no trouble understanding what Kaepernick was saying, and saw the protest as an act of courage. When Colin initiated what he did, it brought a sense of immediacy that wasn't there before. It brought it to a national level. And I think having the bravery to be able to do that is something that we should all stand for. But in almost equally large numbers, white Americans opposed Kaepernick and the protests. Colin, how dare you sit there and blame white people for the problems of minority communities? When will those in black communities take a step back and take some responsibility for the problems of black communities? Because it seems to me blaming white people for all of your problems might make you the racist. All of this presented the NFL with a very clear choice. We're proud of our country. We respect our flag. They could stay on the right side of Trump, the polls, and majority white sentiment, or they could be on the right side of history and help steer the conversation back to police brutality and racial injustice. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. After Donald Trump called for firing black players who protested, the league did its best to signal that it was finally ready to stand up for its players in what seemed to be a miraculous conversion to the cause of racial justice. Rapper Jay-Z has agreed to partner with the National Football League to promote social justice initiatives and expand entertainment options. We listen to our players. We have the greatest platform in the world, and we're using it in a very positive way. But even as Roger Goodell and team owners were singing their own praises for giving black players a voice, 
they were still doing everything in their power to silence protests altogether. The NFL is out tonight with a new policy on the national anthem. Insisting that League owners not only moved to ban protests in 2018. If anyone is on the field and is disrespectful to the anthem or the flag, uh, there would be a, a fine from the league. They also continued working behind the scenes to make sure Colin Kaepernick never stepped foot on the field again. I think the key takeaway here is that the owners were not interested in acting on any of the players' concerns. The owners were only interested in trying to get good PR. In its mission and values statement, the NFL proudly and boldly declares that it embraces its unique leadership role in society, assumes the responsibility that comes with that role, and does the right thing, even if it's unpopular. But at every step of the way, NFL executives and team owners responded the way you'd expect the heads of any multi-billion dollar entertainment corporation to respond. By bending to popular opinion to protect market share, profits, and especially their own power and control. Hi, Jerry, it's Kristen here. I'm wondering if in your mind, athletes should just be quiet play their sport, or should they use their platform to talk about issues that matter to them? But one thing about the NFL, politics are not good for us in any way. We've got to stay away from politics. All right, again, welcome back to Full Circle, everyone, right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA and KPFA.org. You are listening to clips from the documentary film Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. This, this film is produced by Dave Zirin, friend of ours here at KPFA. Dave Zirin is the nation's sports editor and is the author of 10 books, on the politics of sports, of sports, most recently, the Kaepernick effect, taking a knee and changing the world. And Dave Zirin is a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now! He also hosts the nation's uh, podcast, The Edge of Sports. Um, you can find all his work through his website, edgesports.com. In Behind the Shield, Dave Zirin tackles the myth that the NFL was somehow free of politics before Colin Kaepernick and other players chose to take a knee. Um, digging deep into the history of the league, the NFL, and navigating a stunning excavation of decades of archival footage and news media, Dave Zirin traces how the NFL, under the guise of sticking to sports, has promoted wars, militarism, and nationalism, glorified reactionary ideas about manhood and gender roles, and normalized systemic racism and corporate greed. It also helped vilify challenges to the dominant order as unpatriotic and inappropriately political. Uh, the result is a case study on not only the power of big-time sports, to disseminate stealth propaganda and reinforce increasingly authoritarian status quo, but also has the power of activist athletes to challenge this unjust status quo and model a different, more democratic vision of America. You can get this great film and support KPFA radio at the same time. If you are able to just go over to KPFA.com 
www.donate.org right now and click on that donate tab. Again, if you'd like to make a phone call, the number is 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And we only got a few more minutes here. If you are a football fan and are interested in the politics of sports, this is the perfect film to get and share with your friends and fans alike. I'm very excited to get a copy of this film myself and be able to feature it right here tonight on KPFA. Again, the film can be yours for a one-time donation of $120, or you can make a $12 donation over 10 months. Again, just a few moments left. Head over to kpfa.org, hit that Donate tab, and make a donation for this great, insightful film, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. And again, if the film does not interest you, please take a moment to browse through the other available thank you gifts on the KPFA website. One more time before we run out of time, kpfa.org or 1-800-439-5732. And that does it for me tonight. That's the end of the show, Full Circle. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org just after the show tonight for pictures, archive, archive shows, and important links and information related to tonight's show. We'll also post a link to Dave Zirin's information and a link to donate for his film. Shout out to the Full Circle crew, Miss M, the executive director, and me, Free Will and Franklin. I have been your host tonight. I'm also the technical director for this show, Full Circle. Thanks for listening, everyone. I appreciate it. And all those that made a donation tonight. Remember, everyone, while you're out there, do me a favor and please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA tonight. Coming up next, as always, is La Onda Bajita. Good night, everyone. <laughs>